This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your hosts for today are Summit Racing's Al Noe and Jim Grasso. With special guest voice of the NHRA, Brian Loans. Here we go. Welcome to the On All Cylinders Podcast. I'm Al Noe, joined by my friend and co-worker Jim Grasso. And today we are joined by a legend in NHRA drag racing, Brian Loans. It is awesome to have you here, and how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm very appreciative to be here, and uh, the list of folks that you've had uh, on this on this uh, broadcast previously uh, makes me very nervous <laughs> to be trying to live up to the billing here, man. <laughs> you know, before this started, Jim and I were talking about just the awesome history with NHRA announcers. Mm-hmm. You're in some tremendous company, too. I mean, some of the people that I think all of us grew up listening sure. to, McClellan, Evans, Fry. I mean, we can go sure. on and on. And the thing I love about having someone like you on is because somewhere there's probably some younger people looking up to you saying, how did that guy get to be doing what he's doing? I want to do that. And so it's awesome to have you on here because of the history with all the different HRA announcers and also your history, I think, is amazing. Yeah. So my dad was a racer uh, in the 70s and really up until I showed uh, showed up into the picture in the early 80s when the stork dropped me off. He, uh, he he got out of racing for a while, but he never got out away from cars. And certainly we never got away from like watching drag racing. Uh, when I was very little, uh, he restored a 1964 Pontiac GTO, which he still owns, four speed, uh, single four barrel car, got the real wood rim wheel in it. It's a, it's a neat piece. Oh, cool. And, awesome. you know, that car, um, really formed the basis for how I fell in love with muscle cars and how I fell in love with all this stuff. We used to take it all over the place. There was a place in Natick, Massachusetts called Nix that actually was once profiled in the old Carcraft Cruise in America series. They used to go to cool cruise night spots. So Nix was this little kind of fried seafood place that people would show up with. And it was a little place, but there'd be like 100 cars would show up every Saturday night and everything from these crazy, uh, pro- this guy named Rick Fenwick had this crazy Pro Street Mustang that ended up getting featured in some magazines. Uh, and guys would trailer stuff and idle it in. And other guys would just be driving their muscle cars in and being able to do something with that car. We used to take it to the Pontiac Nationals. I mean, we drove that car a lot. We did a, we actually did a time distance rally with that car when we were kids and um, I think back of that now and it was cool because we showed up and there was all these guys that had these like computers and stuff in their car. And it was me, my sister, my mom and dad and this GTO. And they kind of laughed us <laughs> out of the place, which was fine. We had a blast. I mean, you're driving along, you're trying to find these checkpoints, you're trying to do everything on time. And I think we we're, you know, timing the thing on a little Casio digital watch, but it was, it was great. And you know, through all those experiences is, is really how I fell in love with cars. And then, you know, the drag racing thing really came about because my dad was an enthusiast and and we watched as you guys grew up doing the same thing I did watching TNN and then later ESPN and wherever it was on. I still have basically every single one of the Diamond P VHS tapes that were uh, released. Oh, yeah. that, was, that was a yearly thing. Every Christmas, it was like I would wait. And uh, usually it was one of my aunts would buy me one or two of the tapes, whether it was the monster truck tapes or and they walked away or, you know, drag racing 92 you know, th- those are the things that really fueled my interest in cars. And and the cool thing about American Sports Cavalcade was, of course, we love the drag racing coverage. But, I mean, you'd see IMSA races on there. And it's like you'd, you'd watch guys racing these prototypes and you'd see stock car racing on there. And it, and it exposed me um, as a kid to these different types of racing. They used to race big rigs. I mean, every once in a while, they'd show the Great American Truck Racing Series on there. And I think that for me was was always something, especially w- with regard to Steve Evans and Brock Yates and Dave McClellan, that, that bring me back and 
you know, I'm, I'm friendly and pleased and happy to be friendly with, um, with Cam Evans, Steve's son. And Steve Evans to me was just a, an incredible voice, an incredible guy, a, an incredible kind of ambassador for racing. And, you know, if there's anybody that I hope is in the ether kind of going, man, that guy's doing a good job. It's, it's Steve Evans. And I honestly hope that there are people, you know, whether it's kids or teenagers or even guys in their twenties that are, that maybe hopefully see me as an example of someone that they'd like to try to emulate it professionally. So, you know, growing up with the, and then I got my first car when, you know, when I was a kid, it was 84 Monte Carlo with a you know, 305 and a quadra jet on it and did all the <laughs> you same. You flip the air cleaner lit upside oh, down. Oh, you yeah. better believe yeah, it. Baby. That. You better believe it. That qualifies you right away. It's like, all right, yeah. Brian, you're in. You're and it was great. I mean, that was like the really kind of launch for me personally into working on stuff and, you know, outside of working on stuff with my dad. It's just, it's kind of gotten worse from there, I guess. <laughs> hey, Brian, you know, we all have, we all have that defining moment. You know what I mean? We're all car guys, right? But what was that moment where you're like, let me be on this side of the mic instead of on that side of the mic? You know, it's interesting. And, and I've been, I, I kind of think about this sometimes because it's, it's really tough for me to pinpoint one thing. And, and the reality is all I ever wanted to do is just write for car magazines, which thankfully I got the chance to do for several years as a freelancer and, and still occasionally do some of that stuff today. And so the announcing thing came like it came really kind of out of the blue a little bit. So the very first announcing it at the drag strip, it was Lebanon Valley. But prior to Lebanon Valley, I was part of the UMass Motorsports Club. And this was I was the black sheep of the group because there was about 12 guys in the club. I was the only guy that was into drag racing. Everybody else was into road racing. So we actually went and got budget from the school. It's a true story. We went and got budget from the school, the University of Massachusetts. We bought a 1978 Volkswagen Rabbit. We got enough budget to have a guy put a roll cage in it for us and we we kind of hit up our parents for some money and we scraped some money together. And we used to race this thing in the SCCA uh, in a category called ITC. Now, this wasn't autocrossing. This was actual road racing. We would go to Lime Rock and New Hampshire International Speedway and Nelson Ledges, um, went to mid-Ohio one time. I mean, we went all over the place with this thing. And what ended up happening was like our second season where I was reading the uh, SCCA regional newsletter and they said that they needed an announcer. And, and my buddies were like, you know, because I always like to make people laugh and kind of be a ham when we're in the group. And they'd say, you, you should you should go try this. So I said, OK. So I went and they had no but no other people wanted to do it. So I was up there and, and it was very clear within about 15 seconds that I had no idea what I was doing. But I was enthusiastic about it. And uh the guy who was operating, this was at New Hampshire International Speedway. It was the first time I ever did this, which is pretty intimidating because I was actually up in the NASCAR booth overlooking the entire facility. You're looking down at wow. and it's a, an incredible vantage wow. point. Sure. But end of the day, the guy who's running the racetrack, this guy named Ted comes up and I can't remember Ted's last name, but uh, he comes up and he said, okay, a couple things. You've never done this before, right? <laughs> I said, <laughs> in my head, I'm thinking, well, that's not a good sign. I said, no. He said, you're very enthusiastic. He said, your voice sounds pretty good. He said, but you really got to figure out kind of what's going on on the racetrack. And it, it was it was cool for me. That, that may have been a defining moment in some sense because I really threw myself into it at that point. And I spent basically the whole season doing SCCA stuff and that got my confidence up. Once I got comfortable with that, I always wanted to announce at the drag strip. But once I got the idea that I needed to be good enough to get in front of people to do this, I felt very comfortable doing the road racing stuff because there was really nobody there. I was talking to the racers, so it wasn't as an intimidating an environment. Whereas at a drag strip, you know, there's always somebody sure. sitting there watching. Sure. So now that I think of it, and I wouldn't, I wasn't necessarily going to say this, but now that I think of it, that probably was a, a singular defining moment because it it taught me very clearly, and by a guy who who took some pity on me, what I needed to do to be successful at this, which is to show up and put in the work to understand not only the sport, but understand the people, understand the cars, understand the rules, understand all the stuff. 
So once I got a full season of SCCA under my belt, and I think I was doing a pretty good job by the end of it, I called Glenn Groh, who at the time was running Lebanon Valley Dragway, and I actually emailed him. And where I went to school was only about an hour away from Lebanon Valley. It was a couple hours away from Epping. And so I asked him if I could um, come try out or if he had any openings. And like every drag strip always does, of course they had an opening. They never have enough people. To this day, you'll never find a drag strip that actually has enough employees. And so I went up there on a Saturday. He put me in the in the tower with this other guy, and we worked the whole day. And he said, look, we only got like three weeks of the season left, but I want you for the next three Saturdays. And so that really was like the confidence booster. Got out of school for the summer, and I had been racing at New England Dragway with my dad. I bracket raced for years with my father. Horrible at it. I was a terrible bracket racer beyond all measure. And my dad is a saint because he didn't strangle me on the way home from either blowing it at the finish line or just completely being awful at the starting line. But um, I called New England Dragway, talked to Joe Lombardo, ran the track. And then basically my, my weekly schedule in the summertime was I'd work my job. I'd go up to Epping on Wednesday night. I'd work in tech for the first half of the night, and then I'd announce. Then I'd work my job on Friday, work in tech, work the second half of the night on Friday, uh, basically announce the whole day Saturday, and then I'd go up and race with my dad on Sunday. And then when I we go back to school, I was I'd go back to doing the SCCA stuff. So I was doing the SCCA stuff really in like the fall and then into the spring, or I should say in the spring into the early summer. Then I'd really transition into the drag racing stuff. And the the height of this uh, this early part of my my life came when I would work on Friday night at Lebanon Valley. Then I would drive like three hours and I'd get to Epping at like one o'clock in the morning and then I'd work at Epping on Saturday and Sunday. And many people have heard the story a thousand times, but the guy who was running Epping saw me one night. He had left very late and he saw me pulling into the parking lot and I had made these little screens to put in the windows of my truck because it would be hot and I'd, I want to sleep in the cab. So I made these little window screens where the mosquitoes didn't eat me alive. And he said, what are you doing? I, I said, I'm going to sleep. I said, it's like 1.30 in the morning. And um, he gave me a key and he said, just sleep in the tower. And so for the next several years, I, w- I slept in the tower at New England Dragway on the weekends uh, while I was, you know, between announcing stuff. And, you know, that was that was my earliest kind of getting going in this thing. And to me, outside of Ted, that guy giving me the information, giving me the advice to say, hey, man, like, you know, put the work in. The thing that clicked for me was that New England Dragway, there was grandstands in the old, the way that the set place used to be set up. There was a grandstand that was like almost eye level to the tower and the people were, you could almost reach out and touch them. And I would, I would kind of like uh, during the week, almost work on material a little bit and I'd say stuff and I'd yeah. kind of peek out the window. And when you see people reacting to things you say, you know, I would, I'm not a stand-up comedian, but the stand-up comedians talk about it all the time. Like that's what kind of goes, sure. oh, okay, I, I can affect it. So I guess those are, that's a very long winded answer to your question, but those are two kind of uh, defining moments, I guess. It's that adrenaline rush. When they react to your joke, as they say, right? You're like, oh, yeah. keep, keep feeding it, keep feeding it. And that's the dopamine yeah. that's coming in for sure. Yeah. And, and there were nights, you know, back then, I mean, Wednesday night and Friday night testing tunes, you know, there were really, there was no real leash on what I could or couldn't say. So I actually, <laughs> I got, uh, I think it was only once, but at one point I had to tell Joe, I said, Hey, when I leave tonight, you got to get the cop over here to walk me to my car. Cause there's about four guys at the bottom of the building that want to kill me right now. Because, you know, you'd see some horrible looking car come up and, you know, I'd say it looked like it got pulled out of a swamp or, you you know, you kind of be cutting up. The fans would love it. And all of a sudden you look out the window and the guy's friends would be just staring at you like, "Ah," you know, so all valuable lessons. So Brian, when you look back, is there anything that you would do different? You know, I don't know. I, 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 I don't spend a lot of time thinking about stuff like that only because I, I really feel fortunate 
you know, fr- from, you know, where I was and, and where I'm at, I, I feel, I feel very fortunate. And I feel like every experience I've had has, has helped me to get to this point. I mean, you know, for the first 10 years, when I got out of college, I was working regular jobs as well as doing all this announcing and freelancing stuff on the side. So I would work as a operations manager. I managed truck fleets. I managed drivers. I worked, uh, you know, in, in some pretty decent management jobs for a long time. We started Bank Shift, Chad, myself and David Freiberger in 2008. You know, that was when the economy had tanked and the uh, stock market had hit the skids. And it was actually, in hindsight, it was a great time to start a business because it was, uh, you know, the kind of the right thing for the right time. And 2009, David had to go back to the magazine company because they called him back and he couldn't turn that down because the website wasn't making a nickel yet. And November 11th of 2011, coming up here in a few weeks, uh, it'll be 10 years. That was the last year that I, the last day that I actually held a, well, I guess what we call a traditional job. And from that point forward, it's been bank shift and it's been automotive media and it's been race announcing and it's been television work and stuff like that for me. So the 10 years I spent actually working real jobs and that have real consequences and real responsibilities also were incredibly important. And I, I always tell people, you know, I, I get emails and, and communicate with a lot of young, like young announcers and people that want to come up and, you know, how do I get into this full time? And I always tell them, don't do this full time yet. And it's very difficult to do this full time if you, if you don't have, knock on wood, thankfully, a job like I have with a NHRA and Fox. But I always tell them, you got to you got to go to work. You know, don't don't try to make this your full time life's passion to start with build a base of experience that then you can take and make yourself multifaceted. You know, I know you mentioned earlier about you always wanted to be a writer for magazines. So, you know, we get the NHRA National Dragster in here. You wrote an article recently about there is such a bad day at the racetrack. You know, reading that article, knowing what, what transpired at, at the event, I'm at my desk reading that article. And to be honest with you, I got emotional. The, the words and the, and the emotion that you put into that, as a reader, I really felt all the emotions that was going on. Thank you. And I feel like if, if I have a strength, it is a, a true love for the sport and the people that are involved in the sport. And it's, you know, I've I've choked up on air a couple of times over the last couple of years. You know, I've kind of run into emotional stuff every once in a while. And mm-hmm. and I feel like that's fine. I don't feel like that's something to be ashamed of or to run away from. I feel like if if you can watch that Charlotte race and not have your heart just split into pieces sure. watching what happened to Joey Gladstone, I don't know. I don't know what you're watching for at that point. Right. right. I, this sport is, you know, this sport will take every single thing you have. Sure. And sometimes it'll take everything you have and make you feel like a hero. And sometimes it'll take everything you have and make you wonder why you woke up in the morning. So I think it's important for anybody who's announcing anything, whether it's baseball or curling or drag racing or monster trucks, mm-hmm. if you don't actually love what you're doing, the audience is going to know in a split second, you know, especially yeah. when we're talking about cars and car people and gearheads and enthusiasts, mm-hmm. they'll smell a phony from a half mile away. Sure. From a half, oh, yeah. They'll know within three sentences, whether you know what you're talking about, whether you care about what you're talking about or not. And I could never live with myself if I was ever trying to be that guy. Brian, with all the racers that you've met and interviewed, who have you met that when you've met them and you've interviewed them, you're you're just thinking, I cannot believe that I am meeting this person. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, uh, obviously Don Garlitz is one of them. Um, Don Prudhomme. Um, I, I recently, about a year ago, did a did a, did some stuff with Humpy Wheeler. Um, you know, th- those are people you feel fortunate to talk to them because one, they're still around. I mean, the, the, the thing that stinks is uh, the, the march of time takes so many of these people from us before you have a chance to interact with them or ask them questions or sure. whatever. You know, when we did the the unfinished business at the Gator Nationals back in 2019, we did these two sets of roundtables with the, uh, with the I, and I hosted them with the four drivers and we did these interviews. So it's like, I'm in this room with Ed McCulloch, Don Garlitz, Shirley Muldowney, and Terry Vance. 
And then it's like, but wait, now we're going to do one with Warren Johnson. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's like uh, it was it was an embarrassment of riches. But the first time I ever talked to Bob Glidden in person, which was um, at the first U.S. Nationals that I announced, was probably the biggest one of those for me. You know, Bob at that point was still in, in fair health. He was he was working. Billy was running a pro mod. He was working on the car with Billy. And, you know, of all the drag racers on the great all time list, I feel like if there's a one in a one A, I, I really put Bob Glidden on as high a pedestal as I put Don Garlitz in just because, yes, Garlitz innovated so much stuff and and did so many things. But my God, when you look at what Bob Glidden did as a singular entity, he was the only guy running that stuff and he was just destroying people. And he had a little bit of panache when he did it. He would talk a little trash when he needed to. You know, he knew exactly who he was and how good he was and what he needed to do to win. So of my all-time, you know, drag racing pantheon of heroes, I think Bob Glidden stands very close to the top of that. So when I got to speak to him in person, that was, you know, my humana, 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 you know, <laughs> making the cartoon noises type of moment. Brian, one other thing with racing, and, and aside from the people you've met, what kind of things over the years have you seen or observed where that adrenaline, that emotion, it is just the damn breaks and here it comes. And you're like, oh boy, here we sure. go. And your responsibility is to interview and get it out in front of people. But how do you how do you do that? What comes to mind when you've had that? I'll tell you a story that got me in trouble. How about this is a good one? I mean, there's a million of these stories, but I like this one the best because, again, I've never really told it in public. So 2017 at Pomona, Brittany Force wins the Top Fuel Championship. End of the afternoon, it's crazy. It's mm-hmm. bedlam. And John kind of collapses to his knees on the starting line. So I'm a, I'm the starting line announcer for the venue. I'm not I'm not I'm not working on the TV show yet. In fact, I don't even know how the TV show works. I just know my job is to get good interviews on the starting line that are going out to the fans and going out to NHRA.tv. So John's collapsed on the ground, and I'm looking around. And there's nobody coming to talk to him. So and normally we always have to be deferential to the TV show, right? You want you want the TV show with that mass audience to get that first initial reaction. So I just got down on my hands and knees right next to him with the microphone. Unbeknownst to me, the TV crew was waiting for this moment to kind of pass. And I gave him 10 seconds. It wasn't like I jumped on top of him. <laughs> but I'm going in there with the microphone. And all of a sudden, in my ear, my earpiece is starting off, get out, get out, get out. And I'm like, I'm not getting out. So I, I sat in there and, and I talked to John, which was, you know, he was very emotional. could barely get any words out. It was a, a, certainly a moment of, of just overwhelming, you know, emotion for him. And then it became one for me because <laughs> I got my ass chewed so freaking bad <laughs> by, by pretty much everybody top to bottom um, on the TV show. Uh, the guy who was kind of producing the event behind me in my ear. And I was like, what do you want me to do? You know, what do you want me to do? And, and it's fine. We all we all ended up by, you know, by the by the banquet the next night, everybody was laughing about it. But. You know, that was a moment for me where it's like, I, you know, you just want to capture it. You want to get it. And it seems like insensitive. I got a lot of crap from people on the Internet after that about like, oh, that guy has no idea what he's doing. That guy. Blah, blah. And it's like, do you want to see John Forrest laying on the ground? Or do you want to hear what he has to say? Yeah, I, I yeah. want to know what I sure. want to know what he has to say. And, you know, John is an incredible guy and, he, and he's an incredible. You look at his career arc and you look at his arc of, of just being a, a guy who has been so grizzled at this for years. And the John Force we talked to in 2021 is not the John Force that we were talking to in 1985 or 86. This is a guy that's in his 70s. He has incredible accumulated knowledge and he has incredible accumulated stress with his business and everything else. So that to me was going to be a moment where. We weren't going to get John Force that gives you the funny answer and then says, what did you ask me again? That was going to be the John Force that 
we might not have ever heard of or heard from before a father who has watched his daughter accomplish something incredible, a father that's, you know, you just think about all the accumulated things that that must have been in his mind at that moment. How many times he had won Pomona, how many championships he had won, how many weekends he had spent away from his family to do it, how much time he would have loved to have gotten back from that, how much this particular thing meant to him that his own daughter had, you know, risen to become a champion. So, you know, that to me was an incredibly emotional moment. Uh, Clay Milliken win in Bristol in 2017 will go down forever as one of the just one of the greatest, probably one of the greatest things I've ever seen. I mean, just that day was phenomenal and everything that went along with it. And um, yeah, there's a lot of them. And even on the local level, I'll tell you, I, I remember the first time I ever openly just totally just broke down and cried on the mic was when Dan Page, I think this was 20. 2018, Dan Page is a is an A-Fuel racer from New Hampshire. He's a chassis builder, a guy that I grew up with when he was racing locally. We had a, a pro comp class up in New England Dragway that was a, like old school kind of pro comp class. You had dragsters and altereds and, and alcohol funny cars in there, and he was a killer in that. Became a very successful chassis builder, and then he wins Indy in 2018, and I'm on the mic with Dennis Taylor, and that was it. I was, I was a puddle. I was an absolute puddle. It's like this guy that I was – 18 years old, 19, whatever, 20 years old in the tower at New England Dragway, calling him winning a Saturday night match race, just freaking won the U.S. Nationals. And it was a moment that I know he felt of his, you know, professional accomplishment of the incredible, you know, nature to be able to say he won the U.S. Nationals. But for me, it was like, this is the greatest closure of a loop I'll ever experience. I mean, this is my guy. And he just won Indy. We used to stand in this little tiny tower at Epping watching him race in front of 500 people. We're at the U.S. Nationals on Monday and he just won. So that was a big one. And that's awesome. You know, as we're steering down this, this drama, the staging duels and the things that go on, yeah. um, you know, what was the latest? I think it was Bruno and uh, oh, yeah. McGahey. And, <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. Let's been, talk about that. Yeah, Let's get should in there. Should they yeah. have been DQ'd? Should they not have been DQ'd? Do we need more of this? Do we need less of this? One, we need all of it. We sure. don't, we, we need all of it. Yeah. Like, I, no, no less of it. We need all of it. And I mean, the, that was the most talked about pro stock run, which was a non-run in a decade. Nobody yeah. talked more about pro stock in a more passionate way than that, except I'll equate it to this back when a couple of years ago in 19, I guess when, when Greg Anderson qualified 16th on purpose to race Erica, that was another one that brought up a lot of people talking, which was fantastic. But yep. for that yeah. particular moment with Mason and um, with Mason and, and Bruno, and if Bruno's watching, he's going to come to my house and punch me in the head. But I do think <laughs> it was the right move. I think that this, I think the DQ was the right move only because if you set a precedent, that that's something that's going to have no particular punishment value to. Not to say it's going to happen every time, but it's going to happen a lot. And yeah. you know, one of the things a lot of people don't consider in that situation is once they got past about a minute and a half, a minute 45, neither of them had enough fuel to finish the run. A lot of people are like, well, what, what, what would have happened? It's like, well, I'll tell you what. And I told one guy, I said, drain all but about three teaspoons of fuel out of the fuel cell of your drag car and go make a full pull and tell me how good it works out for you. If you're going to run a pro stock motor bone dry on fuel and have it go dead lean at eight, nine thousand, ten thousand RPM, you let me know how that works out for you. Neither guy was willing to do it. So, and that's what made them very smart. And Bruno will tell you straight up, once they got that far into it, he knew he couldn't launch. And the team actually thanked him for not trying to make the run at that point because they knew what the, con the, the mechanical consequence would have been. You know, I did an interview with with Brad Hardy, who's the, the chief starter, and and I asked him point blank. I said, "Hey, like, do, did this come from race control? Did this? Where did this come from?" And he said, "The final decision, as it states in the rule book, is mine, and my decision was to disqualify him." You know, I'm not rooting against either of those guys. Would I have, in my heart of hearts, like to see him dump some fuel in it and make the rip? I probably would have, but it wouldn't have been near the story it was if they had. Selfishly, I'm kind of glad the DQ happened, only because it created an incredible 
two weeks plus of of discussion about pro stock that uh, we wouldn't have had. I agree with you. I think the exposure it gave the mm-hmm. sport was great. It was that you know, let's give them something to talk about. Yep. That's exactly yep. what happened to me. Just like the the end point of that of that whole thing was, uh, you know, of the of the Mason and, and Bruno situation was, you know, they got pointed in multiple times, and I, I don't know. I just ultimately there's a part of me that that likes the fact that the starter is still the guy up there with ultimate mm-hmm. authority because we, we all go back to Buster Couch and and obviously sure. Buster was this larger than life guy and you know he had his moments where he was jerking people out of cars and doing the stuff he needed to do and. That that job is important, and that job needs to be viewed as important, and it needs to be respected as being important. So I do like the fact that, like after the fact, NHRA didn't come out and say, "Yeah, well, race control decided this was the thing," or that Brad said, "No, race control told me to do that." I mean, it was at his discretion. And listen, I know neither guy was happy about it. Mason's a, a much quieter guy and, and a, as a younger guy than Bruno, and he he was probably a little bit less distraught about it. But you know, Bruno took it hard, and and I would too if I'm a racer. The fact that it created as much discussion as it was, I think, or did, is is a great sign for the fact that pro stock is a category that uh, people do care about. Pro stock is a category that people do get into their feelings about, and it kind of reinforces that point. And if we're talking about pro stock, I mean, that's a category that a few years ago was in very difficult shape. And I think you look at you look at Greg Anderson, uh, you look at Richard Freeman, you look at some of the names in that sure. category of them of them making a concerted effort to make it a more accessible place to go racing. And now all of a sudden we got twenty plus of those cars every race. We got Camry Caruso coming in full time next year. Um, we got other people that I've been I've been hearing about uh, coming in. We have a new engine supplier coming with Titan Racing engines to add to mm-hmm. the you know Frank Iaconio Elite KB. Uh, now you're going to have uh, Titan in there. So. And the reason we're having this conversation is because of that run. If those guys didn't have that situation, we wouldn't be talking about pro stock right now, right? Sure. You know, if you're really in the depth of the drag racing world with Camry coming in next year and all these 20 somethings or sometimes these late teen drivers coming in and redefining the class, it's pretty neat. No, it really is. It really is. And you look at a guy like Dallas Glenn, who I know someone's a supporter of, and and this guy's a rookie of the year candidate. He's a guy that is the old school drag racing story that we don't Mm -hmm. necessarily hear that much anymore. He's a crew guy that dreamed about doing this his whole life. And he got the shot and he didn't screw it up. Not that he didn't screw it up. He took the shot and he's run with it. So it's that story, man. It's that's the old story, right? That's the old mm-hmm. 60s, 70s, 80s story of the, the Larry Dixons of the world and the the crew Perfect. guys, the Robert Heights of the world that worked on a crew and then become a driver and become a champion. Well, this kid's this kid's a championship level competitor. And it's a again, emotional, heartwarming story that this guy who just did what he needed to do, put his head down and worked and worked and worked and knew he could do it. And when he got the chance, he, uh, he took advantage of it. But when people who don't know him see that, like from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, well, maybe he's got a rich dad who wrote a check for it. No, that's Dude. absolutely yeah. not what happened. Yeah, those stories are super important for us to tell because that's you know that's that's something that's going to endear people to Dallas. That's how Dallas gains fan base, right? That's how Dallas becomes more of a household name when we talk about NHRA drag racing. Is when people go, "Oh, wait, this is a regular guy who who bled from his hands for years to be able to do mm-hmm. this." So that's what definitely gets people leaning forward in their chair when he races for sure. So Brian, with your typical weekend. You're all over. How do you prep for a weekend? Because you are incredibly well prepared. When you're on, I've never watched one and thought, wow, Brian wasn't ready for that or he wasn't <laughs> he wasn't on the on his game. You always are. And it fascinates me with that many events. How in the world do you do it? Um you, obviously you gotta you gotta develop a plan and you certainly have to develop, if not a system, uh, a, a methodology. So when for my NHRA events, um the method is the method is pretty much the same there because obviously following the series every race you kind of know what's going on. But 
so I work closely with our NHRA and Fox group and, and we keep weekly stats. And then I take those weekly stats and translate them into, you know, a kind of a one sheeter that I have on every class and every driver that's, that's in. And that one sheeter has some potential storylines, has their reaction time average, has all the really kind of hard data that we want to look at on a run to run basis. You know, I want to know if, if Justin Ashley's averaging a 51 light and he's racing, you know, let's say he's racing uh, Antron who's averaging 60, like we can set that storyline up. Like these guys mm-hmm. should pretty much leave dead even. So there are those type of storylines. It becomes very different when you're doing an event outside of, uh, of NHRA or outside of, of a you know super well documented series so like for the radial stuff especially at donald's races i have i have developed this massive binder book of of all my notes that i've kept over the years so i basically build on that each and every year a lot of prep for stuff like that comes off of the internet like i want to know where these guys are racing where they last won if they made any mechanical changes to the car i'm picking up the phone and making phone calls i'm touching base with chassis builders is anybody's stuff been in and out of there you know, much in the same way uh, an NFL an NFL reporter or broadcaster is calling coaches and and talking to trainers and talking to their sources within the league. I'm doing the same thing for drag racing, and it, and it really is almost the same process. You know, one of the things that I I think is super important for the younger guys I talk to is that idea. Not that it's foreign to them, but they don't know how to do it and they don't know how to start doing it. And like I tell a lot of guys that race that have their local they're their local bracket announcers. I say, like, what do you do week to week? And they're like, well, I, you know, I show up and announce the race, which is fine. And the majority of people that announce drag races just show up and announce the race. And there's nothing really wrong with that. But if you don't treat it like it's a craft and you don't treat it seriously, then I don't feel like you should be expecting to move ahead in your career. It's like anything else. If you want to want to play the violin, uh, I would suggest you probably practice playing the violin before you show up for a sure. concert, right? Sure. You, you know, you know the sheet music, and so for me, that early lesson at New Hampshire International Speedway, when the guy said, "Hey, man, like you can be as enthusiastic as you want, but you got to know what you're talking about," I never forgot that. So, you know, if you're a local tr- weekly track announcer, you have access to the run sheets, you have access to who won the week t- before, you have access to how many times they've won that season. There's no reason why you can't show up to your next week having gone over those run sheets during the week and say, man, this guy, this guy was 006 for six rounds in a row. This guy that won the race has done this or that. And to me, that's the baby step to get you started. You work with the information that you can find, but you go and you, you actually put the work in. And so when I roll into an NHRA race, it is a different style of prep again, because when we're racing four or five weeks in a row, I certainly know who won last week, you know, but I still go through, I go through the same process to make sure that I have the information I'm going to need at hand. And then Bob Fry is still involved with our broadcast as quietly as uh, many people don't know that, but, but well behind the scenes, he'll be watching the race at home. There are things that, that simply I can't dig up between rounds. We'll get an email to either myself or this uh, Jen Lorenz, who works in our graphics uh, production department of the show, and she'll send off and forward me stuff. Hey, Bob sent this in. I don't think I can use it in a graphic, but maybe you want to slide it in. So, you know, Bob can go deep into his records and find stuff that I have no hope of ever finding. So when you roll into a radial race or Donald's race, I want to know, how many times this guy won lights out. I want to know what he did last year. I want to know what he did two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. And because those events, yes, there's coverage of those events. And yes, you can work, you know, your Google fingers to the bone to find stuff. I've always just built on accumulated data that I've kept and and written down and, and run sheets and qualifying orders and stuff like that. So it is, it's different. And then I just did a vintage road racing event up in Detroit on our, our weekend off uh, between uh, whatever, St. <laughs> between St. Louis and Dallas. I went up and did a vintage road racing event at the M1 concourse in Detroit. 
that was a, a neat departure for me of something I wanted to do for a long time, just to kind of stretch my legs a little bit and and do something different. And I love basically all forms of of racing and certainly racing history. If you follow my Instagram, you've seen that. But um, that was a whole different style of prep because there I got a list of all the cars that were going to be there. And so it was about less about the drivers because a lot of these guys are not to be disrespectful. They're amateur racers or they're, they're collectors. They're not necessarily race car drivers. So the story is the cars. So for that event, it was cool because it was, you know, getting the information on the, you know, 1972 dihedral wing Parnelli Jones IndyCar <laughs> or Joe Leonard's turbine car from 1968 or um, a couple of the little like prototypes and in, in Lola's and sports cars we had there. So and I got to work with David Hobbs at that event. I mean, freaking David Hobbs. It was amazing. Brian, out of all the tracks you've been to, where have you been when you look at it and say, you know what? This is a really awesome place. People got to go. So I've been to over 170 drag strips now, um, counting tracks that are existent and tracks that are abandoned or the sites of tracks that have been abandoned or gone out of business. So, I mean, I've George Ray's George Ray's drag strip is a place that every every drag racing fan should get to and and experience because it it boils this sport down to its most basic bones and elements. It's a very cool place. It is if we have a Z Max, we also have to have a George Ray's. You have to have both ends sure. of that spectrum and cycle. I've been to the drag strip in Saudi Arabia when we went over there for the Global Auto Salon a couple of years ago. We took a day trip out. We met the track operator on, I think, a Wednesday, and and he sent some Suburbans over. We hopped in and went on about an hour hour ride outside of Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia, to the drag strip there. That was a that was an amazing place, and we got to help that guy out some. He you know he talked about how slow his program runs, and he was trying to figure out ways to make it faster. And we mentioned the fact that he needs to cut a hole in the wall. He's got a he's got a drag strip that's a mile plus long, and the both sides of it have an un, unbroken wall all the way down to the end. It's like, dude, you need a turnoff. You got a guy running an eleven second car. He doesn't need to go a mile. Sure. He's like, oh, okay. Sure. Um, so that was really cool. You know, Summit rather Summit Racing Equipment Motorsports Park. And again, I'm not just saying it. I, to me, the most unique drag strip on earth because it's a massive place that still feels like a hometown racetrack. And there's nowhere else I think we go that has that duality. New England Dragway is a small little racetrack. It's a very cozy, intimate place. It's bursting at the seams when we have a national event there. Summit handles the event comfortably, uh, but yet it still feels like you have tens of thousands of people there and it still feels like you're at your hometown drag strip. So it is an incredibly unique place. Sonoma, California is a place that I tell people we race there and they're like, does anybody show up? And it's like, yeah, we sell the place out every year. You know, when we think about where people live and and how they live and what their interests are, you think an hour north of San Francisco in a, in a winery area, you're going to have a drag race. And it's like, oh, we're not going to have a drag race. We're going to have a big drag race. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. so, you know, all those places are great. And, you know, abandoned places you can go. You can go if you live into Charlotte, North Carolina area, put Shuffletown Park into your Google Maps and drive to it. Just walk past the swing set down over the ridge and you'll be standing on what was one Shuffletown drag strip. The drag strip's still there. They just built a public park around it. So loads of places like that. I've been to places that you got to walk a quarter mile into the woods to find anymore because the trees have grown up around them. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the things Freiburg and I do every year on drag week is try to find either visit places we haven't been to or, or find some places that, that don't exist anymore, stuff like that. I give you a long list, man. There's a place called Nahunta Drag Strip I've been to that is um, it's it's a little bit shorter than an eighth mile, and the shutdown area is a hard stop on the back banking of a dirt track. You know, I'm sure you've been asked this before. So, where is, if somebody was like, "All right, you got a full bill to race for the whole season," would you be a racer, and what would you do? It's funny because I've never had any real. I mean, I loved racing with my dad when I was a kid, but I've never had any desire to be a race car driver. Honest to God, I. I I like watching them. I like uh, studying them and under, trying to understand them and their psychology and, and watching them do what they do and, and mm-hmm. exhibit those skills. 
I don't have any of those skills. And uh, I would be, whatever you stuck me in, I would not be good at it. So if I had, if I was given the full run of anything um, and told I could do whatever I wanted with it, I would probably, I would field the top fuel team. Uh, that's what I would do. If I, I, I would be a team yeah. owner and I would field the top there fuel team because then I could be critical of the driver to do something I couldn't do myself. <laughs> understand, understand. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I, yeah. I like to ask that question because you never know. Some people don't want to race. Some people like to be the car chief, the crew chief, or the track guy. You know what I mean? So yeah, not true. everybody wants to be a driver. You don't have to be either. My current project is a is a 1940s Ford 8N tractor. So that, that gives you an idea of what I, of what I you know, my, my idea of high speed is right there. Fourth gear in that thing is good enough for me. Brian, if you could change anything about drag racing today, you know, we talked earlier about yeah. pro stock. It's great to see the class healthy again. But what would you change? What would you do? Wave the magic wand. Make it happen. Yeah, I would concentrate this probably on on pro stock and pro mod. I would uh, diversify, vastly diversify the body's selection in pro mod. And, and some efforts have been made over the years to give some weight breaks for the older bodies and stuff like that. That was that's a big one because you know my favorite category growing up was pro modified still one of my favorite classes in the entire sport and you know as a kid of that kind of came of age in drag racing in the 90s it was the exploding thing it was you know mm -hmm. Scotty Cannon Ed Hoover Mike Ashley all these all these yeah. early racers Shannon Jenkins Steve Vick you go right down the list of all these guys that were that were the real kind of even the fastest streetcar style stuff but it's funny because I had this conversation yesterday with a friend that ProMod has always been this class of too much of. So early on, it was, well, too many nitrous cars, not enough blower cars. Then it became too many blower cars, not enough nitrous cars. Then it became too many 63 Corvettes. Then it was too many 53 Studebakers. Then it was too many turbo cars. Now it's too many Pro Charger cars. Now it's too many late model Camaros. So this, the class has always been the, the class of too many. Um, but I would like to see, I really would like to see some representation of of the old school body styles, certainly some more representation of the the showmanship of years past in that category. A lot of beautiful cars out there, but we don't necessarily see the beautiful cars like we did back in the day when the concentration was really on paint and names and uh, maybe some yeah. match race money on the side and stuff like that. It has professionalized itself and there's nothing wrong with that. But when sure. you get professionalized, there's consequences with that, right? We have to make sure that we have a prominence of the sponsor on the car. We have to make sure that that sponsor's name is, is readily able to be read. We need to make sure we have a fast car that's aerodynamic. So that's why we're all going to run this late model Camaro body because we're going 250 miles an hour. The logic chain is unassailable. We, you know why it happens. Sure. Um, so trying to untie that knot is a, is a difficult thing. And then in Pro Stock, I, I think that, you know, the 500 cubic inch formula that was developed and, and released in the early 80s was the absolute right move for the time. And it was, if I could wave my magic wand and go back to about 1990, I would start to move away from that 500 cubic inch formula. And I think you... I think because of the fact that you had that five, you've had that 500 cubic inch formula now coming up on what will be 40 years next year, 82 to, to 2022, right? Again, it's tough to get away from that. I think the way that you attract the OEs, of course, is is you move toward a, a more OE based power plant in the cars. Um, you move you move toward more OE based bodies on the cars. And again, at this point, you're talking about a new class, right? You cannot look at a group of dozens of racers that have millions upon millions of dollars invested in their equipment and say, hey, by the way, uh, we're just going to sure. make all that, we're going to make all that yeah. uh, obsolete. So, switch, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So to me, I think there is room in, in the NHRA and in all door slammer drag racing for a new factory style class that, that inevitably will start out something very small and hopefully it catches interest in fire and, and we see it grow ahead. But you know, I don't think we're too far away from potentially seeing something that will be of interest to more than just the big three. I think I think there's a lot of good stuff in the works that may be um, 
maybe of interest to, to manufacturers globally as opposed to just the big three in drag racing. So, you know, no guarantees, but you may want to just pay attention for something. Yeah. Stay tuned yeah. to Brian Lund's yeah. and his podcast because he will <laughs> fill you in as soon. Brian, speaking of that, let's talk about your podcast. I, I've sent sure. you messages in the past. You've had a number of episodes that have resonated with me. I love it. Tell, tell me about how you're set up. Tell the listeners where to go to find it, all that good stuff. Sure. So uh, we got two. We have the uh, NHRA Insider Podcast, which is uh, released every single week, and that's always involving NHRA drag racing. Typically in season, we're talking to sportsman racers or pro racers that are either winners or people who have had an impact or people that have done something you know, of note in the last uh, week. When we get to the off season, it gets a little bit more fun because I get to kind of expand uh, who I'm going to have on the show. We get to kind of go a little bit more off the reservation. And uh, we plan on doing some pretty interesting stuff this off season, you know, with the tech department, with some other elements of NHRA drag racing that people either don't hear a lot from or get a lot of uh, publicity outside of, you know, getting arrow shot at them when they make a decision. So we're going to kind of enlighten people on some of that stuff. And my other podcast is the Dorkamotive podcast, which is about it's about anything and everything. And uh, it's been a little while since I put one of those out, but I have uh, some episodes that I'm creating now that should be out in the next few weeks. And that ranges all different types of racing topics. So there's a show about Art Arfons that is uh, kind of the definitive, at least I think it is kind of like the definitive story of his racing life. Uh, Humpy Wheeler, a bunch of different guests on that one, a bunch of different uh, racing related shows, uh, the, the history of the Ameri- Great American Truck Racing Series, which is a very popular episode about uh, big rig super speedway racing in the 80s. So you can find that one, Dorkomotive Podcast, also uh, where fine podcasts are sold on the internet and it's free. Like both, like like all podcasts, it is free and worth every penny. Brian, what, let's talk a little bit about some of the other things you do outside NHRA. Sure. So the no prep, small tire, radio, yep. you know, all the different crazy stuff. Where do you see that part of our sport going? To me, it's it's in an interesting place right now, and I think you're seeing a transition, and especially in radial racing, you're seeing a transition there, and you're seeing a transition away from you know radial versus the world, which was has been the kind of ruling category in that in that part of drag racing for several mm-hmm. years. Once the elapsed times went into the 340s, it was kind of a really once they went into the 360s, a lot of a lot of guys looked around and said, I, I just can't compete with this. You know, I, I need to find another place. And that's where a class like Pro 275 was born, which is also, you know, escalating quickly in performance. So to a degree, I think we have seen the peak of Radial versus the World in terms of its participation. Now, there are still some very good cars in there. Brian Markowitz had himself a great weekend at South Georgia Motorsports Park at, at No Mercy very recently. Um, you have categories like X275 and and uh, Ultra Street, as well as limited drag radial that continue to be popular and strong. It's like anything else. And for as much criticism as, as NHRA or any sanctioning body gets for rules management, that's one of the things that has been a tough thing to manage in, in radial racing. And, and X275 and John Sears that guy is a saint as far as as far as drag racing goes in my book. You may agree or disagree with what he does, but the fact that that guy has done this for as long as he has and, and shepherded over the X275 category and taken the slings and arrows and taken the screaming and yelling and the good and the bad with that class is pretty amazing. You know, we saw X275 cars running like way down in the bottom fours and I think that moving that needle backwards, which they have done to a degree, has been good for that class because you just don't want people to feel like they can't compete in showing up. And I think when we look at the history of you know small tire drag racing, it is really a category that has always spawned its new classes because of performance enhancement. And the new classes aren't born because of the fastest guys. The new classes are born because of the slower guys go, hey, we need somewhere else to race. And they create a class and figure it out. You know, that's where Ultra Street and, and even several other ones have come from in that in that regard. So 
radial racing is is in a different place than it was a few years ago and i don't necessarily think it's in a bad place but it's like transitioning i know next year they have this championship series uh which i think is a good thing i think there's uh you know a lot of uh sponsorship support for that it's going to be run at you know a handful of the most high profile uh radial style events and so that is going to be a good thing in terms of just organization and getting people out on the road and and helping car counts at uh at certain events that may need a little help in that regard you know, when we look at radio racing, I think the backside of it that is even more impressive is ProMod. The ProMod class, you look at all these different places where you can go run your ProMod, and there are different rule sets all over the place, and, but they're not that far apart. So, you know, the, you got the Snowbirds uh, Outlaw Nationals coming up down in Bradenton in a few weeks, and he's got 50 cars pre-entered for that thing. 50th anniversary of the event, he's got 50 cars mm-hmm. entered for that. So there was a time where it looked like, oh, man, the ProMods are just going to go away and everyone's just going to run radials. Well, that didn't happen. A lot of the radio guys have put the big tires back on and they go pro mod racing. So if anything, what all of this means is that people in drag racing in 2021, whether they want to believe it or not, especially if you're old, if you're an old person, you might want to block your ears here. You have more options to run your car in more different places and in more methods and distances and brackets and indexes and whatever you want to do. You have more options now than you've ever had in the history of the sport. If you have a car that can run eights, you can go index race it. Mm-hmm. You can put small tires on it. Go radial race it. You can go bracket race it. You can go run it. I mean, you can do what whatever. You can go run drag week with it. I mean, think about that. Think about thirty years ago what you did with your race car. You had one class, probably a one track. You went and ran, and that was what you did. I mean, it just the sport has changed so much, and there's so many options out there. It spread people out some. It certainly spread the radial cars out some when localized and regionalized programs have come up. So some of the major highline events maybe don't have quite the killer car count they had in years past because of the fact that guys go, I can run this regional series. It's more my budget. It's maybe more my elapsed time level, performance level. But the converse side of that that's a positive is it elevates those big events, much like the U.S. Nationals is always an elevation of an, of an NHRA national event because people make the commitment to go there to compete with national level competition as opposed to just racing people regionally. So again, super long way to answer your question, but radio racing is, I'm not going to say it's in a bad place. It's in a transitional place right now. And where it goes over the next two years, I think will really be dependent on rules management and the leadership of the classes. You know, Brian, you bring up a good point. Just get out and race. Yes. Right? You know what I mean? I think NMSA just announced stock, super stock classes, index racing, radio racing, small tire racing. It's all over now. It's disseminated into this huge thing where it just isn't at your local track anymore. Wherever you're at, eight eight seconds is still fast. 10 seconds. Get a 10-second car. Anybody that tells you a 10-second car isn't fast has never been in a 10-second car. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. Enjoy yourself and go to your local track and support it. And uh, you know what? There's a lot of good times to be had as we've seen them coming up through all the years. Anything, Brian, you want to share with the listeners before? We've taken a lot of your time. I know you're busy. You got, you know, something you got to prep for. No, I just... um, you know, just thanks for having me on. It's a great conversation. We touched on a lot of different stuff. And if you're, uh, you know, if you're an aspiring announcer, someone who wants to do this or someone who does do it, and you want some advice, you want some coaching, you want some ideas, you want to be told what not to do, you want to be told what to do or who to work for and who not to work for, you can email me uh, or you can just find me. Shoot me a note on Instagram um, at Brian Loans. My email is brianloans at gmail.com. And anybody that's uh, wants to get in this field and has questions, I'm more than happy to answer them and, and try to help you along. Thank you so much today, Brian. We know you're busy. You're always somewhere you're always announcing we love the fact that you're uh, you're just elbow deep into this all the time summer racing fans thank you so much for joining us yep. today and go racing. racing go racing
This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.